Please turn with me in your Bibles to Mark's Gospel, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 7. Mark 7. I want to start off with a simple question this morning, and that is, why are we gathered here this morning? Why are we gathered here? Even though there's many possible answers, I believe most of you would answer this correctly. The next question is, now why are you here this morning? This is one of those questions that helps you evaluate whether your personal answer matches the bigger picture question. In other words, whether the I'm here because matches the we're gathered here because. In our passage today, Jesus takes us to a place in a Gentile region on the Mediterranean coast, which is just just outside Palestine, just north of Galilee and Phoenicia. And it was only about 20 or 30 miles from where he was before. And in this Gentile region, a Gentile mother approaches Jesus with a desperate plea concerning her daughter. In this encounter, we get a strikingly beautiful picture of how someone should approach God. To help us get started, let me first make a couple of uh, general observations about how most people down through history have thought about this question. Most ancient peoples thought of God as a vicious and even bloodthirsty, powerful tyrant who needed to be constantly pacified or appeased by either good behavior or outright sacrifice. In our day, those who are not atheists tend to think of God as what? Some spiritual force who can be accessed anytime they want, no questions asked. Now let's hear from Mark in Mark chapter 7, verses 24 and 30. If you're able, would you please stand as I read Mark 7, verse 24 through 30. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. And from there, he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth. And she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Yes, Lord, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement, You may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. 
This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Now we start off in verse 24 with Jesus going to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he did not want anybody to know that he was there. This is right after the intense confrontation with the Pharisees and the scribes. Over the concept, if you remember from last week, of ritual defilement. In which Jesus taught that externals do not defile a person. But it's what comes from within a person in their heart that makes a person unclean. So Jesus is again getting away. But what's the difference? This time, he's going into Gentile Phoenicia, which the Pharisees and the scribes saw as ritually unclean. In fact, the Pharisees and the scribes taught that any association with these Gentiles made Jews ritually unclean. Interesting setting. In fact, Jesus now spends most of his time away from the region around Capernaum where he'd been, where the crowds were so great and the Pharisees and the scribes always seem to show up. There is an important purpose in him doing this. We start to see a different different emphasis all the way through chapter 10 now in Mark. Jesus is teaching his disciples more as he knows the cross cannot be far away. In other words, Jesus is seeking places more secluded than the busier places like Capernaum or Gennesaret. Why? So he can more effectively impart the important information necessary for his disciples before the cross. Now, we all know they didn't get it until... His resurrection. But the point was that they would remember, even if they didn't understand completely, all that he had to tell them now. Well, we see that Jesus, it didn't take long for him to be found again. Even in Syrian Phoenicia, by the way, that's Lebanon today, even there, Jesus could not be hidden. He was found out immediately, as we see in verses 25 and 26. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. Now in Matthew's parallel account, which is in Matthew 15, verses 21 through 28, we find out there that she was a Canaanite living in Syrian Phoenicia. This means that she was actually a descendant of the ancient enemies of Israel, the Canaanites. Also, we read in Matthew that she cried out for mercy and addressed Jesus as Son of God. So she had some recognition of Jesus as the Messiah who would heal people. Jesus had healed Gentile believers before, but the difference here is that 
that was always in Jewish territory. She would also know that she has none of the religious, moral, and cultural credentials necessary to even approach a Jewish rabbi. Because she's a Phoenician, a Gentile, a pagan, a woman, and her daughter has an unclean spirit. It's a pretty long list. In other words, she knows that in every way, according to the standards of the day, that she is unclean and therefore disqualified to approach any devout Jew, let alone a rabbi. The statements that Matthew has that Mark doesn't have are not surprising, in case you're wondering. Matthew wrote mainly to whom? Mainly to Jewish readers who would be intensely interested in Jesus doing a a miracle to help a Gentile in Gentile territory. Hot topic. Mark wrote mainly to Romans and other Gentiles, so he would have needed much more explanation if he put this about this Gentile in his gospel that she had called him son of David. Remember that Mark wrote succinctly and always pushing it immediately, immediately, immediately. That's one of the reasons. But God wants us to read all of his words so we can get the picture. Both accounts get across the point that this is an extremely striking scene. She shouldn't even be there, but she is. So the question is, why? Because she doesn't care about being ritually unclean in Jewish eyes and being disqualified to approach a Jewish rabbi. She entered the house where Jesus was without an invitation She fell down at his feet and began begging him to cast the demon out of her daughter. No one can stop her. She is relentless. The disciples were so upset by her cries for mercy that they begged Jesus to send her away, which Matthew tells us. Why doesn't she care about being unclean and disqualified? Because she's a parent. When a child is in danger or jeopardy, the parent just does what it takes to save that child. Doesn't matter what kind of personality they have, this mother just does what it takes. And that means here that she pushes past the barriers and stays down on the floor begging, which is how the language actually pictures it. Now, what I'm going to try to do is put it all in order by combining Mark's account with Matthew's account. So in our verse 26, the last half, we read, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. That's first. And second, from Matthew's account, We see something kind of strange, maybe, to us. Uh, It doesn't look right at first. 
But at first, Jesus doesn't answer her a word, quote unquote, in Matthew 15, 23. He's silent. And then thirdly, we learn that the disciples were so upset by her cries for mercy that they begged Jesus to send her away. Then Jesus answers her cries. In Matthew 15, 24, was something Mark didn't record. And he said this to her. I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Jesus concentrated his ministry on Israel for all sorts of reasons. He was sent to show Israel that he was the fulfillment of all Scripture's promises. The fulfillment of all the prophets, the priests, the kings, and even the temple. But after he was resurrected, he immediately told his disciples to go to all nations. So the words Jesus uses here are not really the insult that they first appear to be. He's saying to this Gentile mother, please understand, there is an order here. I'm going to Israel first, then to the Gentiles, which meant what? Then to the other nations, later. Fifth, Matthew records in Matthew 15, 25, that following this introductory statement, the mother said something. She said, Lord, help me. She was on her knees begging for this miracle. Jesus was silent. And then he says he needs to go to Israel first. There's an order here. And she uses the word Lord, it's general Lord, not like we would use it, but still respectful as you can imagine. And she just said, help me. And then sixthly, Jesus then says to her in verse 27 of our text, let the children be fed first, for it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Sounds like an insult, doesn't it? A more serious one. Our society mostly loves and adores all sorts of canines. I don't happen to be one of those. Not the loving and adoring part. But that's the way most of us are. But in New Testament times, most dogs were scavengers. They were wild and dirty, and no matter where they were. So to call someone a dog was an insult. Gentiles were often called dogs because they were considered to be, here we are, go again, ritually unclean by the Jews. But this is not what Jesus is doing. This is not what Jesus is doing. 
he is replying by using a parable, a metaphor, a likeness. In fact, the word he used for dogs here refers to puppies, little bitty dogs that everybody loves and adores. Household pets, even. So what is Jesus saying to this mother? Let's get this straight. He's saying, you know how families eat? First the children eat at the table and afterward their pets eat too. It's not right to violate that order. The puppies must not eat food from the table before the children do. Now comes the mother's absolutely remarkable reply in Mark 7, verse 28. But she answered him, Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. She's saying, what? Yes, Lord, but the puppies eat from that table too. And I am here to do just that. Remarkably, this woman understood Jesus' parable, which contained a challenge and an offer. Her response to Jesus' challenge is, okay, I understand I'm not from Israel. I do not worship the God that the Israelites worship. Therefore, I don't have a place at the table. I accept that. She sees and recognizes Jesus' offer and says, okay, I may not have a place at the table, but there is more than enough on that table for everyone in the world. And I sure need mine now. You see that? This is the theme in here. There's a challenge and an offer. And we'll hear it several times now as we finish this text. Amazing, isn't it? She does not take offense and she does not stand on her rights. This Gentile woman is being what you could call respectively assertive. Something the Western world knows almost nothing about anymore. In other words... We just hardly ever see this kind of assertiveness demonstrated anywhere anymore. We don't know how to contend. We don't know how to engage. We don't know how to struggle, dispute, debate. We don't know how to argue. Unless, what? We're standing up for our rights. Standing on our dignity and our goodness and saying, this is what I'm owed. But this woman is not doing that, do you see? She's not saying, Lord, give me what I deserve on the basis of my goodness. She is saying, give me what I don't deserve. On the basis of your goodness, 
and I need it now. She's saying, give me what I don't deserve on the basis of your goodness. I hope each and every one of us sees how remarkable this really is. She recognizes and accepts both Jesus' challenge and that offer that's hidden in the challenge. Well, what's Jesus' final response? He said to her, For this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Jesus' opening words of, for this statement right here could be easily translated as such an answer. Hear the tone? Wonderful answer. Incredible answer. Her plea is answered and her daughter is healed. One commentator writes that she appears to understand the purpose of Israel's Messiah better than Israel does. Her pluck and persistence are a testimony to her trust in the sufficiency, and get this, the surplus of Jesus. His provision provision for the disciples in Israel will be abundant enough to provide for each one such as herself. Do you see the irony here? Jesus' chosen disciples are dull and uncomprehending. And then comes a walk-in pagan woman. And after one sentence, she understands his mission and receives his commendation. How is this possible? The answer is that this woman is the first person in the Gospel of Mark to hear and to understand a parable of Jesus. Every time Jesus gave parables, his own disciples said, can you come over here, can you explain this to us? We don't get this. This woman understood the parable that Jesus just gave. That she answers Jesus from within the parable, that is, in terms in which Jesus addressed her and indicates that she is the first person in the gospel to hear the word of Jesus to her, is incredible. Now, why have believers down through the ages been amazed by this count? If you read anybody's commentary on this, going Luther, anybody, everybody is amazed by this scene. And that's because this woman saw the gospel, that you are more wicked than you ever believed, but at the same time more loved and accepted than you ever dared to hope. That's the gospel. She saw it. That's Jesus' challenge. What? What? What do you mean a challenge? That you're more wicked than you ever believed. What's the offer? 
that you're more loved and accepted than you ever dared to hope. On the one hand, she's not too proud to accept what the gospel says about her unworthiness. She accepts Jesus' challenge. She doesn't get her back up and say, how dare you infer that I'm a Gentile dog? I don't have to stand for this. Even if it was a metaphor or a parable. Can you hear yourself saying that? Maybe the question ought to be, can anybody here not hear yourself saying that? But on the other hand, she doesn't insult God by being too discouraged to take up his offer. Now, this is getting really serious as we see this. There are two ways to fail to let Jesus be your Savior. One is by being too proud and having a superiority complex keeping you from accepting that challenge. Well, I'm not as bad as the Bible says I am. I mean, I've got merit. I can put in some points. I can help Jesus. I mean, he didn't have to die for me. It probably topped it off, but I, I'm all, I, I can do it. I'm okay. I'm a pretty good person. Understand that? That one's easier to understand. Well, maybe. But the other way is through an inferiority complex. Being so self-absorbed that you say, I'm just so awful that God could not love me. This too keeps you from accepting his offer. John Newton, author of so many hymns you can't count them, which one do you know? Amazing Grace wrote a letter to a man who was very, very depressed. Here it is. You say you feel overwhelmed with guilt and a sense of unworthiness. Well, indeed, you cannot be too aware of this evil inside yourself, but you may be. Indeed, you are improperly controlled and affected by them. You say it's hard to understand how a holy God could accept such an awful person as yourself. You then express not only a low opinion of yourself, which is right, but also too low an opinion of the person, work, and promises of the Redeemer, which is wrong. You complain about sin, but when I look at your complaints, they are so full of self-righteousness, unbelief, pride, and impatience that they are little better than the worst evils you complain of. We sing a song often here in this church by John Newton that many people wince at. about suffering and prayer. This man God used to see within people's hearts in a way that few others get. 
very well. But that's exactly, exactly what this passage covers in form. It's just as much a rejection of the love of God to refuse to seek Him, to refuse to come after His mercy, to refuse to accept it, to refuse to be content with it, as it is to say, I'm too good for it. And we need to really, really let that sink in. One of the greatest prayers of the English language, literally, that isn't in the Bible, is the prayer of approach to the Lord's Supper written by Thomas Cranmer in 1549. And it was actually in the first book of Common Prayer. It's based on this story in Mark. This story in Mark. And over the centuries, millions of people have prayed it. And every time anyone has ever prayed that prayer, Cranmer has been inviting them to step into this woman's shoes and approach Jesus boldly with respectful assertiveness to take up both the challenge and offer of God's infinite mercy and we're going to pray this prayer right before we actually take communion and in case you're wondering you think 1549 you think long vocabulary Uh -uh. it is simple and to the point We know that the Lord's Supper is not appointed for the physical body. We know that. Because the Lord has ended their meal in that upper room for the physical body before he began this supper, which was appointed for our souls. We must remember Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Scripture teaches us that we receive true spiritual nourishment when we focus on and believe in Christ. I think today we need to hear this story. Jesus' challenge to accept how much we need him because of our wicked, sinful nature. We don't deserve to be in his presence on our own. We can't. And yet we see the offer, bread of life, that he sent to the whole world. And here in our story, in our text this morning, he was in a Gentile territory already. He performed a miracle for a Gentile mother, a picture of what was to come in his saving grace. In 1 Corinthians 10, 16, the Apostle Paul writes, The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation or communion in the blood of Christ? And the bread that we break, is it not a participation or communion in the body 
of Christ. We do what Christ instructed us to do in taking the bread and cup in his supper. And as we do so, as we think about the truth of what this signifies, our souls are nourished. We're humbled. And at the same time, our confidence grows because it's what our confidence is in that grows. The person and work of Jesus Christ.